morning. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a phrase that occurs several times in John's Gospel. It first occurs when um, they ha- have problem at the wedding and they need more wine. And Mary tells uh, Jesus they have need, and, and Jesus replies, um, woman, my time has not yet come. And that phrase appears several times in John. Uh, There's a time when the mob are trying to kill him. There's a time when the Pharisees are trying to arrest him. But each time they're unable to do it because it's not Jesus' time. And he says right through his ministry, I do only those things that I see the Father doing. And everything he does is conditioned by the Father's timing. And it says in... um, A bit later, sorry. I've, I've lost myself. Um, oh, it's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, John, John 11. It says that the the Pharisees and the Jews had determined that now was the time that they were going to arrest Jesus and remove him. And it says this, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple and they asked one another, what do you think? Is he going to come? Is he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. All of Jesus' life, the Pharisees have sought some way to remove him from public. And now they've determined that they're going to trap him. And so they've said, if you know where he is, let us know. And Jesus, knowing this, departs into a private place. Because again, his time hasn't come. It's not the right time for him to come. He knows precisely when Father wants him to go to Jerusalem. He knows precisely what's going to happen. And right throughout his life, everything is conditioned by that one fact What is Father's timing? When does he want me to go to Jerusalem? And now Passover is approaching, and Jesus knows this is the time. And so he begins his Calvary journey. He will now determine the timetable as he follows his Father's will. The Pharisees think they're in charge of the situation. The Romans think they're in charge of the situation. Satan thinks he's got Jesus where he wants him. But Jesus is actually in charge. And that's what Palm Sunday in many ways is about. Jesus is now declaring to the people, this is God's time. This is my Father's time. I am now going to declare who I am publicly. And I am now going to fulfill what God has always wanted me to do. What my Father called me to do. He hasn't gone through Gethsemane. He's still got that to go through. But he knows that now is the time when he must start 
his journey to Jerusalem in earnest. And so what happens? Well, let's run through the order of events because there's more to it than just Matthew's account. Jesus approaches Jerusalem via the village of Bethany and Bethphage, and he sends the two disciples, as Charles reminded us earlier, and he tells them to go and get a donkey. And a donkey and a colt, which he, they do, and he says, when you get there, they'll, they'll say, why are you taking these donkeys? And you're to say, well, the Lord has need of them, and they will release them. And this happens, and the animals are brought to Jesus. So they bring the animals there, and they lay their clothes on the animal and use them as a saddle. And then they set Jesus on the donkey, and they start out for Jerusalem. And as they start out, the people throw their clothes and cover the, 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 the street with tree branches to provide a protection for the animals and to show their, their love and, and, and worship for Jesus. But there's a second group involved. There's a second group who have heard that Jesus is on his way. And they come from Jerusalem. And it's a much bigger group. And most likely John is with that group. This is a massive multitude. And they take palm leaves and they're the ones that are crying out with the disciples coming the other way. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna in the highest. And there's this tremendous multitude and they're crying out with a loud voice. This isn't some quiet, nice, cozy situation. These are people who have come to worship their king and to receive their king. The multitude contains many people and they've all come for different reasons. A lot of them had come because they'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus. A lot of them have come because they'd heard about it and they want to see who this man is. A lot of people believe this is the king we've been waiting for for years who is going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. And so there's a whole group of people. There were also some foreign visitors, some Greeks, and they've also come to see Jesus. They've all come to Jerusalem to worship, but their worship is now all centered on this person coming along the road on a donkey. It's a bit incongruous in one sense. Just imagine, last year we had the, uh, the Diamond Jubilee, wasn't it? And uh, you'd gone up to London to see the Queen coming along, and you, great crowds there, and you look over and you see this old lady trotting along on a donkey. Not quite what you were expecting. So what sort of king were they expecting? Well, they were expecting a king who was going to actually release them from the Romans. And some were saying, who is it? And they're saying, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Lots of different people. All got different ideas about who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? Some of them clearly know. Some of them clearly don't. And as the noise and the singing reaches a crescendo, the Pharisees complain to uh, Jesus. And Jesus says, look, if these keep quiet, the stones will rise up in praise. He realizes that this praise, this worship, is inevitable if we recognize who Jesus is. And if we don't give it, then Jesus says, well, the elements will. Do you remember in the Old Testament, the trees of the field shall clap their hands. God will receive praise. And then at the end of this crescendo, we get back to last Sunday morning and Charles preaching on 
Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. So there's this tremendous contrast between this praise and this worship and this wonder and Jesus worship, weeping over Jerusalem. Now that's a fairly a reasonable summary of trying to get the four Gospels together. Some of the things might be in a slightly different order, but that's, that's basically what's happened. And I just want to, want to look at three things from this story. The first one is prophecy and Jesus' ownership of the situation. The second thing is exuberant worship. And the third is, why has Jesus come? So if we go back to Zechariah in chapter 9, which is one of the verses that is mentioned in, in, in the New Testament, we find this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And a bit later on in chapter 13, it says this. On that day, a fountain will be opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from impurity. So it's been foretold by God several hundred years before what is going to happen. And Jesus now is declaring this day has come. He's making the point very clearly to everybody. I am God's Messiah. I am God's anointed. I am the one that God has sent. And he's making it very clear. There can be no, no dispute. That's what he is. That's who he is. That's why he's come. Jesus is clearly saying to people, I am the deliverer. In, um, in the, the, rest, the, the passage we read from the Psalms, which is quoted also in, in, in this uh, procession, it says this, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. Now both that psalm and that passage in Zechariah are clearly messianic. And Jesus is saying quite clearly, I am the Messiah. I am God's anointed. This is God's timing. God is working now. And he's saying, take note, because this is important. God has decreed a time, and I am fulfilling that time. And the crowd recognize that the Passover is a time of the commemoration of deliverance. Deliverance from bondage, deliverance from Egypt. Could this be the one that's going to deliver us from Rome? That's their focus. They want a king, a king who's going to deliver them. Their king has come. Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. Save, we pray. Prosperous. They see this king coming to deliver them. So Jesus accepts the prophetic implications of messiahship and he's used this, this journey, he's determined the time. He's declaring to them who he is, why he's come. This is God's time. This is God's day of salvation. Easter has begun. And then the second thing is to look at just briefly at the worship. Because it's not the sort of worship that we're so often used to. They're crying out with a loud voice. There's no quiet worship here. There's people rejoicing, exuberant. They recognize who this wonderful king is. 
He's their king. He's their savior. He's come for them. Now, I wondered if anyone was sitting there thinking when David was wandering around with the flags, hmm, not sure that I want one of those. I'll be quite happy to keep my hands down while that goes by. Well, unfortunately, you're going to have to wave them. And I'll show you why. If you've got a Bible, if you turn to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and around the elders and the living creatures. They fell down on their faces and they worshipped before God. Amen. Praise and glory. Wisdom and thanks and honour and praise and strength. He is our God forever and ever. Amen. But in glory, that's what we'll be doing. Might be flags, might be palm branches. But we will all be joining in. So we might as well prepare for it now. And not think, oh, I'm not pretty sure I like this noisy worship. Because noise is something that is very apparent in heaven. Now, it does say that there was half an hour of silence. I realize that. But it says a lot more about noise and exuberance and worship and praise and recognizing who this God is and what this God has done. And if those people before the resurrection on the journey to Jerusalem could get so worked up in praise and worship, and if that's what we're going to be doing when we get to glory, perhaps it asks me some questions anyway about the quality of my worship sometimes, that I can sit there not really involved, not really connected, observing perhaps even, or perhaps my mind miles away. And yet here we are in God's house, this God who so loved us that he sent his son not just to drive down the highway on a donkey, but at the end of that journey to go on a cross and to die for me. God gave everything he had for me. And in our worship, the challenge is, how much are we prepared to give him? Or do we hold back? These folks didn't hold back. And in heaven, you won't be able to sit in the back and think, well, I'm not actually going to get involved in this because I don't agree with this sort of stuff. So we might as well now Perhaps I'm being a bit naughty, but we might as well now get, get ourselves into, the, into the, the, the frame of mind of recognizing that exuberant worship is something that God loves. And if you read the Psalms all the way through, you can't get away from it. Clapping hands, shouting, dancing, waving flags, you name it, it's in there. And that's the style of worship that we should be, we should be into. And Jesus, far from saying to the Pharisees, yes, we really must calm this down, says, look, don't worry, because if you stop them, the stones will do it anyway. 
And if we don't worship God, God will get the worship he deserves. But it's us who will miss out. And then, looking at Luke, going on to the third point. This is Luke's account of the triumphal entry. And in verse 40, we'll go back a little bit. We've got the crowds worshipping, and then in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. So you've got these two things in juxtaposition. You've got Jesus receiving the worship of the crowd, the adoration of the crowd. Jesus making his move onto Jerusalem. All that God is doing. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he weeps. And I think part of the reason for that was so many of the people have missed completely the point of his ministry. He's been repeatedly saying, my kingdom is of a different nature to that of the world. My kingdom is not of the world. But they were looking for a king who was going to save them in a worldly way, in a worldly situation. They wanted a king who was going to deliver them from the Romans a king who was going to give them prosperity here, a king who was going to deliver them from all their problems. And fundamentally, that was not why Jesus came. They should have known that when they saw him coming. As Zechariah says, Behold your king comes to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. That should have made it clear that he was coming in humility and in peace. If he'd been coming as a God of war, if he'd been coming as a God who was going to deliver the people, he would have come on a charger. He would have come as the head of an army. But he comes in humility and peace. And that was the way that kings in the Old Testament would go if they wanted to make peace with somebody, if they wanted to show that they'd come in peace. And they should have realized that that was why he was coming. They were worshipping the wrong Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Am I worshipping the wrong Jesus? They were worshipping a Jesus of their own imaginings. A Jesus that fitted what they wanted him to be. Not the Jesus that he actually was. They wanted a conqueror, a deliverer, a miracle worker. Someone who would do the spectacular. Someone who would deliver them from their physical and worldly woes. But they completely missed the point. If we go back a chapter from our reading originally in Matthew and look at chapter 20, verse 25 says this. When the ten, this is when the, 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 the brothers wanted to be um, put at Jesus' left and right hand. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is Jesus' purpose in coming. He's come to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Timothy, it says this, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the primary purpose of his coming. The Jews' chief problem wasn't the Roman occupation. They thought it was. Their chief problem was they were separated from God. And it's the same with us and with mankind generally. You know, we think we've got all sorts of problems, and we may well have, but fundamentally, our big problem, the one that needs dealing with most of all, is our relationship with God, our relationship with Father. The gospel must always start with the individual before we can hope to redeem society. And even now, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap, trying to build the kingdom of the world rather than the kingdom of God to transform the world. The Jews missed the point. They thought he'd come to deal with all sorts of issues, but he'd come to deal with one fundamental issue, our relationship with God. And so we have to ask ourselves, who is the Jesus I worship? Is he someone that I know as my saviour, as my personal redeemer? He said right at the beginning of his ministry, and it's as true now as it was then, new birth is essential. Have we been born again into a new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we know of him personally? Not just what does church say, but what does it mean to me? What is my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And still, the cross is the only way. There was no way that Jesus was going to deliver the Romans, from, to deliver them from the Romans, because he'd come to die on a cross. He'd come to give himself to save the world. Salvation is the big issue. It's still the big issue. It's always the big issue. If we haven't got relationship with God, whatever else we've got, we've got nothing. And that's the message that we need to get out to the world. I think it was Harry was praying about the, folk, the, the person with the, um, the big house and the big car and everything. Got everything, but what's the point? Well, unless their relationship with the Lord is right, fundamentally and finally, there is no point. And we need to establish that relationship.